This is Mandy Moody, the ACFE's content manager. And today I am joined by Mason Wilder. Hello, Mason. Hi, thanks for having me. Mason is the ACFE research specialist here, and we decided to dig into a scam that we've actually been talking about for a few years now, but has made a few more headlines recently. And it is the business email compromise scam. So Mason, before we get started, tell us and our listeners a little bit about you, your background, and what you do here at the ACFE. Right. So as you mentioned, I'm a research specialist, one of a couple here in our research department that what I mainly do is create and update a lot of our education materials uh, to keep them current and relevant. And I focus on the investigation focused products. Uh, I also, as you know, write for all our publications and am doing a little bit more training in public speaking too. Uh, as far as my background, before working at the ACFE, I come from a background of kind of intelligence analysis and investigation in the private sector. I started out with more of a physical security focus, supporting global operations like secure transportation, executive protection, kidnap for ransom and piracy response, emergency evacuations, etc. And uh, from there, it's just kind of a natural evolution into more of the investigative or financial aspects of risk management, especially uh, background investigations and due diligence. Sounds very interesting. I have definitely had some uh, interesting roles, especially the the kidnap and piracy stuff always uh, raises some eyebrows. And I have to admit, Mason and I also love to nerd out about fraud news, right? That's right. You can uh, can get the visual component of these exchanges in our uh, fraud in the news Facebook Live things we're doing now on a monthly basis. So today we're going to focus on the business email compromise scam. So for people who may not have ever heard of this or have just heard BEC scam, you know, while reading a headline, what exactly is it and just how big of a problem has it become? Right. So business email compromise in its most, I guess, stripped down form is it's a form of spear phishing. So that's a a social engineering technique in which a specific individual is targeted due to their status, role uh, in a company or position that in this case is going to involve their abilities to authorize payments, uh, specifically wire transfer payments are the most common form in these scams. Some other names that this scam has been referred to as uh, include man in the email scams, corporate account takeover, uh, whaling, and CEO fraud. So the whaling fits in the theme of spear phishing and and regular phishing. Um, So like I mentioned, it's, it's targeted rather than in phishing scams where they just, to stick with the analogy, cast a wide net to you know go for volume of smaller payoffs this one uh the probably the most distinguishing characteristic is the the high payouts uh so fraud 
Right. Fraudsters are going to spend a little bit more time getting to know their targets and doing their research in order to get a higher payout. The FBI's Internet Complaint Center, they, they just put out their annual report. And in 2018, they received 20, 000, more than 20,000 BEC complaints, which was a 30% increase from 2017 and losses of almost $1.3 billion, which is up 92% from 2017. Of all the different scams on that report, uh, the business email compromise was very disproportionate in terms of uh, it made up about 6% of the complaints, but accounted for almost 50% of the losses. So that's the most distinguishing characteristic about it. I think according to those statistics, which are just based on U.S. complaints, averaged about 63,000 per incident in terms of a loss. And with, you know, the, the cases that typically make their way into the news have huge payouts, you know, millions and millions of dollars. Let's discuss one of the latest cases to hit the news and go over just how much money was involved in something that was a very simple tactic to get information. What exactly happened and how was the scam discovered at a parish? In Brunswick, Ohio, there's the St. Ambrose Catholic Parish. And uh, recently reports came out that they had had $1.75 million stolen. And over the course of two months, I think, uh, and as I understand it, according to the reports, Two of the employees of the parish had their accounts breached, and the fraudsters that breached those accounts then sent emails to other employees of the parish uh, telling them to change the routing instructions for payments to a contractor that was working on renovations to the church. Uh, So they told them, you know, here's some new wiring instructions to a different bank account to pay us our our monthly fees for the renovation. And so it went on for two months until the contractor finally reached out to them and said, hey, you guys are a little bit overdue on payments now. Um, But the church, that was news to them. They said, well, we've been sending the payments. And then they looked into it and, and realized what had happened reached out to the FBI and their insurance company to try and recover the stolen funds, which um, I believe that that process is still ongoing. So in this example, where was the weak link? Uh, There's a couple, couple points here. First off, they, they had the two employees had their accounts breached. Now they didn't specify exactly how that happened. Uh, Sometimes it will be just a general network intrusion Um, but a lot of times it's, you know, a a traditional phishing attempt where you get somebody to, you send someone an email, get them to click on a link that prompts them to enter their account credentials or login information. And then you take that information, log into their account and start sending emails as them. So, uh, I'm not sure which of those two or whether it was a combination of those two. You know, sometimes in these scams, 
once people get access to a network, whether that's from one individual's credentials or some other means, they'll just camp out for a while before actually carrying out the scam and learn about who requests wire transfers, who authorizes them, what are the typical amounts, et cetera, et cetera, so that they can take all that information they've learned and, uh, and apply it to their uh, to the fake emails and give them the best chance of working out. I remember one of the first scams like this to happen, and it wasn't even through email. It was somebody uh, pretending to be a contractor calling and saying, calling actually very close to closing time of a business a secretary and saying, you know, your CEO was supposed to send me this by end of day today, and I haven't gotten it yet. I need it now. And so she just gave all the information and sent the money over. But that's another example of the person being preyed upon. What's the human element that's involved here and how how can we train people to be more suspicious of things that are out of the daily routine? All right. So you mentioned the human element and that's key to this scam because for number one, ultimately a, a human being has to authorize a wire transfer for this scam to work. Now they don't all use wire transfers. Sometimes it's a, a check or whatever. It's, it's going to be whatever the organization typically does to settle its account. But uh, people definitely go over wire transfers more frequently because it's harder to trace. You know, once once that wire transfer lands in a bank account that a fraudster controls, they can divert the money any number of different directions and make it really hard to trace. But as far as the human element of why the scam works, uh, it's like any other social engineering tactic. You're you're depending on a, a human to make a mistake, yeah. either someone clicking on a phishing link to grant access to the network or a person not recognizing a spoofed email address. It plays on characteristics of trust and self-preservation with a healthy dose of urgency thrown in there to kind of manipulate human vulnerabilities. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you're getting an email that you believe to be from the CEO of your company, you're not gonna question it because they're the boss and you're also going to comply with the request because you don't want to tell the boss no, especially when they're telling you it's an emergency. And so that's the, you know, the trust, the self-preservation and urgency are, are key for, for this scam. The biggest thing that you can do is training and awareness for these kinds of scams that involve a human element because there's, there's no software that is going to automatically diagnose you know that um, somebody's pretending to be someone they're not or at least not yet anyways and so there are a, a variety of different options you know you can do in-house training or I know there are companies that provide not only some kind of video or interactive training but then follow up with phishing attempts that they send as kind of ongoing tests 
to the employees to see whether or not people are clicking on these malicious links and if so who who those people are so that you can uh, help identify opportunities for additional training uh, and you really want to make sure that the people who authorize payments for the company receive this training if no one else but uh, another thing is uh, just, you know, make sure those people that are responsible for authorizing wire transfers are aware that this happens. And every time you see a story like the St. Ambrose Catholic Parish, you know, forward that along to the person that's responsible for authorizing payments and say, hey, take a look at this. Like this is this is a real threat. You mentioned that these cases can get pretty big in losses. What is the largest known case and how big did that one get? The largest case that I'm aware of, uh, it could be that there's a bigger case, but I don't think one has been publicized. There's a, a Lithuanian guy who got more than $100 million out of two companies using the business email compromise scam. And those Two companies were Facebook and Google, who you might have heard of. And uh, I don't know. I haven't. I haven't heard of those. <laughs> you, you would think that you know these Silicon Valley stalwarts would uh, be a little less susceptible to to something like this, but he got he got ninety nine million dollars out of Facebook and twenty three million dollars out of Google posing as an Asian hardware vendor with spoofed email addresses. So this is kind of, you know, we talked about where with the case in the St. Ambrose Catholic Parish, employees had their accounts breached and the fraudsters impersonated those employees. Well, this is kind of the flip side of the common BEC schemes where somebody poses as a vendor and it doesn't even require compromise of that vendor's network or account. It's just a spoofed email address, which probably, you know, used a capital I instead of an L in the email address or, or something subtle like that. And that's all it took to scam two of the most technologically advanced companies in the world out of more than $100 million total. So that case, that was, a, that was several years ago, but... Like anything else in our justice system, it, it takes a while to, especially with a, a big case, to, to get it fully prosecuted. So he has pleaded guilty to only one count of wire fraud, but he also forfeited about $50 million and he will be sentenced in July. So keep an eye out for that one. But, yeah, I think this highlights not only the simplicity of the scam, but how effective that human element can be since those very sophisticated companies, uh, it, it didn't take much to get more than $100 million out of them, although that probably also has a lot to do with the fact that they are so flush with cash and are sending out so much money all the time that, I mean, $100 million is just kind of a blip on the radar to Facebook. yeah. So what can we do? What can we help our employees 
learn and know and how can we protect ourselves or how can fraud examiners protect the companies that they're working with? So like we mentioned earlier, awareness is probably the, the biggest thing. Uh, encouraging training and awareness campaigns specifically targeted at the employees that have authorization privileges for payments. And then there are also some, you know, kind of institutional safeguards that you can put in uh, requiring two-factor confirmation of any major payment requested by a CEO. In other words, if, if somebody gets an email request from a CEO outside of business hours saying, hey, we messed this up and we need to wire $10 million to this company, but instead of using the usual routing number, we need to use this one, et cetera, et cetera. Just have it in the standard operating procedures for that person to pick up the phone and call that person that sent the email request or require dual authorization for large payments so that it's not just one person that is has the pressure all put on them to respond to this urgent request. The, or... You know, anytime that there's a, a change in wiring instructions or routing numbers for a vendor, make sure that those changes are verified with that vendor with the phone number or contact information that you have on file, not the one supplied in the email. So those, those are a couple things. And then I mentioned how sometimes these scammers get access to a network and, and hang around for a while, intercepting a lot of traffic to study it. And you make sure you've got intrusion detection software or cybersecurity. And, uh, and then when all else fails, probably have yourself a, a cyber crime insurance policy so that if you can't recoup the funds f with the help of law enforcement, that, uh, at least you've got a, a chance at being made whole through insurance claims. Those are all really, really good tips that are seemingly easy, but we know that what happens is you fall into a routine or you get rushed or things move very quickly, but taking the time to do those things and implement those policies will probably go a long way. What do you see on the horizon? Do you think there will be more cases with fewer losses or fewer cases with larger losses or both? Or do you think that, you know, you mentioned earlier software that would actually help prevent this hasn't been invented yet. What can we prepare for that might be more proactive or do you think this will continue to be reactive? I did just mention, you know, some software like intrusion detection things helping cutting down the chances of a, a company becoming a victim here. And so there's there's some things that can cut down the chances, but nothing that I'm aware of that will outright prevent attacks like this. It could be that there are some artificial intelligence or machine learning solutions that are eventually fed enough data in, uh, from previous BEC cases to where they can recognize certain patterns that are associated with these requests 
and send up red flags when they notice those patterns, you know, uh, again, you know, just like any other scheme, any preventative measures or technological solutions are just going to prompt fraudsters to get more creative. I think there'll be those advances will either be mirrored or potentially outdone by the, the criminal element. Uh, one thing that I, I wrote a blog about recently was uh, deep fakes. Mm -hmm. And so some of the implications that I didn't really get a chance to explore in that shorter blog post, and, and I do want to clarify that I am not aware whatsoever of this actually being used thus far, but there are artificial intelligence programs out there or programs that rely on artificial intelligence to help recreate video or falsify video and audio as well to impersonate somebody or make it sound as though someone is saying something they never said. Mm -hmm. And so I can certainly see a potential application of that with these business email compromises because it's one thing to get an email from a spoofed address or a compromised email account of your CEO saying, hey, we need to pay these guys right now, even though it's after hours and I don't have an invoice number for you or whatever. That's one thing, but to get a phone call that is generated through artificial intelligence studying your CEO's speeches and TV appearances and fed with all that information to generate an incredibly convincing impersonation of that CEO, I mean, then it's going to be very hard for, for people to resist the urge to just go ahead and authorize that payment. So I can see that being an example of these business email compromise schemes getting more sophisticated and therefore more effective. And if they're more sophisticated and effective, I could see them being uh, more widespread. So I could definitely see more cases, and that would fit with the trend according to the Internet Crime Complaint Center and their statistics. I mean, there was a 30% increase just year on year from 2017 to 2018. So uh, unfortunately, I do not see the problem going anywhere and I think since it it is so reliant on human error and the human element and of social engineering scams the best thing that people can do is make their employees aware of the phenomenon and you know try and set up some safeguards like just multi-factor confirmation or verification of, of these big payment requests is, is the best that people are going to be able to do. So the future looks bright. <laughs> As usual. <laughs> well, awesome. Thank you for joining us today, Mason. Well, thank you for having me. And uh, please feel free to have me back anytime. We will. Thank you all for joining us today. Uh, be sure to download our other podcast wherever you listen to your podcast, whether on iTunes or Google Play. And this is Mandy Moody signing off, and we will talk to you next month.